Welcome to a special edition of Turn of the Tide. For the next few months, in addition to featuring scientists working on climate change, each co-host will be exploring a topic related to her research or outreach work and the public policy that surrounds that topic. For my special edition series, I will be exploring the closure of the red abalone fishery in California. This is part one of my series. So first, I would like to acknowledge the GPS Biomed program from UC Irvine, including Emma Flores, who generously provided the funding through the public policy program that they have um, so that we could have some airtime to explore these topics in more detail. I'm going to be focusing on abalone policy and fishing for abalone policy in California um, and hopefully highlighting some differences across um, or between California and Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is where I am currently recording this and doing uh, my field work um, on the abalone there, which are called paua. And I, what I really want to do with this episode is just kind of set up an introduction. What even is an abalone? What the history of the um, kind of commercial fishing, which is really the problematic part of the fishing um, in California, and, and how that's resulted ultimately um, combined with natural causes like climate change to close the fishery. The decision was made to close the red abalone fishery for the year 2018 and that decision was made in December and that's the first time in California's history where it's no longer allowed to fish for red abalone in, uh, in the wild. Um, so, so what even is an abalone? I mean, it can be kind of confusing if you're not from a rocky intertidal area or if you've have never um, fished or eaten these animals. So uh, they're large marine snails and they kind of look like a big snail that's been flattened um, into a basically hamburger shape um, and they can reach the size of a dinner plate. Um, and the biggest species in the world is California's red abalone. California has seven different species, potentially one other subspecies, and um, but the animals themselves and uh, different species can be found around the world in rocky intertidal areas. And, and some of the biggest places where you would find abalone are um, the northeastern shores of the Pacific Ocean, so ranging from Alaska um, down to Baja, and then um, New Zealand, Aotearoa, Australia. Um, and South Africa. And so uh, those are kind of the biggest places where people you know, fish and farm for these animals, but they do exist in other places as well. Those are just the most prevalent. They're, they're important habitat engineers <clears throat> in the wild, which means that they have an important role in shaping the habitat along rocky shores. And they do this by competing with sea urchins. Um, they create areas by their grazing for other animals to settle, but they're, they, they are ecologically important, they're iconic. Most importantly, probably they're really culturally relevant um, for the native people of the, the these coastal areas. Um, and I'm gonna start by talking about the the problems that settler history imposed upon the, these populations. These animals starting in the 1900s were commercially harvested at a fairly unsustainable rate. And so um, there are photos online of piles of abalone shells taller than the, the men doing the fishing. And this pressure really depressed a lot of the populations 
that uh, existed in, in uh, California. And I'm focusing on California, but this is kind of a global, this is a global issue. It's happening here in Aotearoa as well. But really the, the, the reason, the impetus for, for talking about this in California is that they, California just closed um, their red abalone fishery. And so the reason why they were overfished is because people love to eat them. They are considered a, a delicacy um, and an important um, cultural, uh, traditional food for coastal tribes that depend on that resource. Um, so, so we have this situation happening in the 1900s where the abalone fisheries are being commercially overharvested. And then in the 1980s, um, in 1982 and 1983, there was a particularly strong El Nino. And with that El Nino event um, came a new disease called withering syndrome. And <clears throat> that disease um, is caused by a bacteria. It's the subject of most of my dissertation. Um, and I, so what I, what I study is kind of how the disease impacts different species in different ways, um, what it does inside the animal, um, and how temperature uh, invokes or induces the disease more readily than, than cold water does. And, and, and I'm not going to get too much more into that. But so this disease showed up, and within just a few years, the animals that were, that still existed in, in kind of robust populations, they were gone. Um, and so there was this huge decline um, in what was left of the abalone, but not all species were impacted the same way. So this is the primary reason or one of the primary reasons that black abalone are listed as an endangered species. Um, but white abalone are also listed as an endangered species. And, and I think that overfishing is probably a bigger uh, historical reason for that. But, um, and, and other species like pink and green abalone um, are not as readily impacted by the disease at environmentally relevant temperatures. Um, and, and that's also part of what I study for my dissertation. But um, if this disease come through, it really impacted the abalone and it's arguable that it, it's still having a pretty big impact today. Um, and that kind of leaves us in this tricky spot because we had this, this human problem of overfishing. And then we had this natural disease come in with an El Nino. And it, I guess it's arguable whether or not that's natural because we know that El Ninos are increasing in frequency and intensity because of global climate change. And I think a lot of um, what we know about or what we what we need to, to kind of clarify about a lot of these processes really needs to be integrative of all of these um, different stressors. And that's part of what um, I did when I was in, I interned with NOAA and I kind of incorporated what climate change does uh, as a threat to black abalone into some of the, the planning that happens with endangered species. But um, just to, to reiterate, we have this, this historical overfishing problem of this important animal, um, important for lots of reasons. Um, and then we have this disease come through and it wiped out a lot of what was there. And now we're left with what to do with the animals that um, are left. And so the way that this, the way that I understand that this works and um, it's really complicated. So if I miss any important points, please, um, you know, feel free to, to comment and let me know. So in California, there's a Fish and Game Commission and this is a board of people who have been appointed by the state governor. Um, and they make decisions. Um, one of their roles is to make decisions about like fishing quotas and what, um, 
fishing rules will happen in the coming year. Um, and that's where they play into um, the story of the red abalone. And then there's also Fish and Wildlife, the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And so there's the Fish and Game Commission appointed by the governor. And then there's the Department of Fish and Wildlife, which are two totally separate things and have really similar names. And so it can be really confusing, especially if you're not used to this system. So when I move forward, um, I'm going to talk about the commission, which is the appointed um, board of people that make decisions um, on the fishing. And then there's the, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, which is largely composed of scientists who are studying um, fish and wildlife and enforcement for, um, for uh, these uh, issues. They deal with things like permitting. So if you've ever, um, you know, gone and needed to collect scientifically or to uh, recreationally harvest any animals, the permitting for all of that is with fish and wildlife for the most part. So, um, so these are two totally separate bodies, and that could be really confusing. Um, and what fish and wildlife does is is they they study this problem. They've got some great scientists, kind of monitoring the populations of red abalone, what the, the food for red abalone, which has largely different kinds of kelp. Um, and that's what the scientists are doing. And then they kind of study like, how many animals do we need to sustain this population? Um, how many animals do we need to allow fishing at certain rates? And they do all these kinds of complicated um, modeling to inform the decisions that are made by the commission. And so that's kind of their role. And I'm gonna um, transition in a little while to an interview um, in which that's explained more. Then the, the you know, because science is one body of knowledge, um, there are lots of different types of bodies of knowledge or forms of knowledge. Um, I'm also gonna, um, in, in this episode, I, there's gonna be an interview um, with a woman who uh, is a member of the, the Pomo tribe um, of Northern California. And this is a um, tribe that depends, or that uh, abalone is an important part um, of their traditional um, food and traditional diets. And so there are, there are lots of stakeholders in this, in this process. The scientific community, which is in this case represented by Fish and Wildlife. Um, there are Native people who depend on this, which you're um, going to hear from one of those people in an interview. There are recreational fishers who travel to Northern California or from Northern California and recreationally harvest in these areas um, in the occupied and unceded territories of um, the Native people that uh, depend on that resource. Um, and then there are other uh, interests. Um, in this case, it, there's no commercial fisheries, um, but there's tourism that depends on this. Um, there's a lot of different people who are um, interested in this story, and I'm going to highlight two of those in this episode. So my goal here is to provide a little bit more background from the experts, because I'm not, I mean, I'm an expert in abalone physiology, but I'm not an expert in the fishery policy and I, a lot of what I wanted to do was learn more um, and share that with you. But um, it's complicated. It's a complicated issue and um, certain voices don't tend to be amplified as much as others. And so I'm trying to, as much as I can, 
create an unbiased platform from which different stakeholders um, can present their, the problem from their point of view. Um, and I'd like to highlight that I think what's going on a lot right now, at least in social media of the science community, is this competing um, structure where there's some people arguing for one thing and some people arguing for another and, and they're not coming from the same point of view um, or from the same value system. And instead of integrating those and figuring out how they could work together, um, we end up with some arguments of I'm right, you're wrong. And what I really wanna do with this is focus on how to integrate these different forms of knowledge, these different levels of knowledge and these different value systems in a way that values all of the people involved in that decision-making process. I think right now we're not there yet. Um, no system is perfect, but I think that um, there are some really constructive things that we can do. And a lot of this um, approach comes from the a conference that I just went to when I landed in Aotearoa. Um, it was called the Pacific Climate Change Conference. Um, and I think it's the second annual or the second um, meeting of this conference. And it, it focused on resiliency, climate change, um, and uh, kind of persistence into the future in the Pacific, where which is the front line for climate change. And I've written about this on my blog, but um, you know, a lot of the what has come up, what came up in this meetings was the integration of different levels of knowledge, different stakeholders of knowledge, and different forms of knowledge into creating resiliency in management planning and moving into the future. And that's kind of what I hope to, to get out of this, is to get um, a more holistic view of this process. And I kind of, I'm, I'm interested in the collaborative nature um, of trying to solve these problems um, with everyone, uh, everyone's voice represented. And so with that, um, I'd like to go into the, the first interview with Katie, who is a biologist um, or a scientist with the California Department for Fish and Wildlife, so the scientific part of that, that fish and whatever um, titles that, that can be confusing. So just to reiterate, the commission is the board that makes decisions. The Department of Fish and Wildlife are the scientists. So she's one of these um, scientists and she works with other scientists um, who study this problem. Um, and she's been a bit of an advocate um, for the, the approach, the, the, the saying that the science says that we should close this fishery um, and uh, to hear more about how scientists come to those conclusions, um, I will go into the interview with Katie. And before I do that, I just I want to kind of mention that the, the sound is different in the interviews because the interviews are done on, on a phone. Um, and so um, just bear with me. It'll just sound a little bit different. Um, but uh, so here's Katie. So, so do you want to um, maybe tell me a little bit about like what your role is in regards to abalone and like how you kind of got interested in this and when and started in it? Yeah. So I originally started working for the department's um, ocean salmon project. Um, so my background originally was in fin fishery research, but I got connected with um, Dr. Catton and Dr. Rogers Bennett through um, just diving for the Bodega Marine Lab and eventually switched over um, to work for the Invertebrate Project, um, which has been really great. We're making a lot of 
really um, interesting progress, I think, that is a little bit more tangible as an employee uh, for the invertebrate side of things as opposed to finfish is kind of a, a lot of um, work from from an office and the invertebrate project is a lot of hands-on field work, which is really nice. Um, and so I kind of got into it um, right when the El Nino was hitting and um, the kelp was starting to go downhill. Um, so as as far as my personal experience, I, I was a diver, just a, a hobbyist diver before this. And so I got to see um, Sonoma and Mendocino counties right before it kind of took a dive. Um, and then I got onto the invertebrate project and, and started actually doing some research for um, the department and for UC Davis um, as far as the red abalone populations go. So um, now I'm a scientific aide for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, a research diver for them, as well as an analyst for UC Davis's white abalone project. Okay. Um, and so are you more in working with the white abalone now than the red abalone? Uh, my focus is on red abalone for the most part. Um, I help out with white abalone, but it's it's basically about I'd say it's split about seventy five twenty five. I'm I'm mostly on red abalone. So. Okay. What does your kind of like day to day look like when you are working on abalone stuff? So when I'm working on Northern California red abalone stuff. Um, we do a lot of our field work in August and September. So we're on a boat every day um, starting from 6 a.m. till 6 p.m. in the evening doing scuba surveys um, along a group of people of scientific divers getting together. And we do um, transects along 10 index sites along the coast. So um, we get on a big warden boat and then we uh, we use that as our home base and we go off on zodiacs and on whalers and we um, – hop in and, and do as many transects. We kind of task load ourselves and do as many transects and count as many um, abalone and other species as possible. And then um, during the other times of the year, I am, we're analyzing the data. We are doing experiments in the lab. Um, I'm running an experiment right now at the Bodega Marine Lab um, to try to figure out how abalone respond or responding to the wild with no food source. Um, so we're we're feeding some, and we've kept food away from others, um, just just to get an idea of of their reaction in the wild and what they're experiencing in the wild, as well as if if we get some starved um, and they they come to us starved, if they can um, bounce back given some macro kelp and some food sources. Um, and then the other parts of the year, we're doing red abalone outplants in Southern California. So I'm down in LA right now. We just finished checking um, one of our sites. Uh, so it's about a week of diving, and we do surveys on our our outplant sites, and we we find um, evidence of our abalone whether they're <laughs> surviving or whether they're not surviving, um, and we're getting good results from San Diego from that. So um, for the Northern California fisheries, um, you know, mostly it's 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 based out of uh, Sonoma and Mendocino, and I'm up there um, for most of the year, so. And and what leads you guys to, because I know you're part of a team that's made this recommendation to the commission to close the fishery, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What what goes into that kind of decision-making process? Because my reasoning behind asking this question, just so you know, is that, like, it, often the argument against 
scientists in this process, I feel like, is this, like, these are these people in an ivory tower, and they're telling us we can't do what we want to do. And, like, obviously right. no one goes into abalone science because they don't want people to be able to, to consume abalone. Right, right. <laughs> um, it's, like, the opposite logic. Um, and so, so I'd like to hear a little bit about what goes into that decision-making process. Yeah, so that is interesting that you bring that up because most of the scientists on our team, including volunteer scientists and scientists outside of the department, are abalone recreational divers. So most people got into this because they want to see red abalone, you know, stay healthy and they want their kids to be able to fish and they want to keep that tradition alive. Um, I mean, that's why I was became interested in marine biology. That's why most of my colleagues, if not all of my colleagues became interested in this is because we want the fishery to stay open and we want to work hard to keep it open um, given the changes that we're experiencing in our ocean. So um, what went behind the recommendation for closure is um, we have decades, a couple decades worth of data um, from Sonoma and Mendocino County, just red abalone density um, surveys. So uh, when the El Nino hit in 2013 and 14, or excuse me, 2014 and 15. Um, we saw that warm blob off our coast and the warm waters, and that mixed with the sea star die-off in 2013 and the urchin explosion um, that happened. We we just noticed on our dives that um, red abalone are coming back, are, are getting fished, and, and they're coming back starving, and their body index count is way down there. Gonad count is uh, their gonad uh, measurement is way down. Um, so our surveys in the past few years have reflected that in the numbers. Um, we're finding a lot of shells, and it's just an abnormal amount of shells. And and it, it we we were clued off in you know 2014 that this was going to happen. And um, this past year in 2017 uh on some on some of our surveys we found you know 10 times as many shells as we found actual live abalone and sometimes you're you're counting abalone and you feel like I'm counting a, a dead snail walking you know i feel like it's going to hang on for another week and um Jeez. and pass you know the next so um we actually what was interesting is is from a personal experience i was getting a lot of fishermen um coming up to me and and maybe suggesting that it is closed for a little bit, which I've worked in fisheries for a while, and I've never heard fishermen advise a fishery to be limited more. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting to hear. And um, so, so the way we measure, there's a threshold of 0.3 abalone per square meter, which is, is kind of hard to understand, and, and we're trying to do a better job at, at translating that to, to the public because I, we know it's not it's not really like an easy easy image to grasp, um, but but on our transects um, we usually in healthy years we have a, a much higher density of abalone um, and we 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 break it down into square meter which gives a fraction of abalone um, which is what's hard to imagine but we usually have above a point three. Uh, abalone per square meter um, count, and this year our counts went way, way, way below. And, and these are sites that we've visited and revisited for years and years. So um, the 
when it drops below the threshold, that's when um, we as scientists are, you know, it's a huge red flag. Um, and, and just the evidence that we were seeing, the numbers that we were seeing coming back, they were just too low to suggest that the fisheries stay open. And, I mean, we want we want it to stay open, but um, in order to, to save it, we we thought that um, it would be smarter to close, to temporarily close, uh, close the fishery. And, and we just recommend that again. So we're just, we don't have anything to do with the actual decision. That's all the California Fish and Game Commission. Um, those five people are the ones that vote and decide. So we recommend it. And to be honest, we actually didn't think it would, would end up, they would end up closing it. We thought they would take it, um, take the limit down pretty far, but we didn't think that they would close it. Um, so, uh, in retrospect, I would have liked to be ready for that a little better. Um, I would have liked to, you know, get a press release out explaining our methodology a little better and maybe putting it into uh, it, more understandable words. And that's what we're working on right now um, is to to give a press release um, explaining our methodology because it's a little bit misunderstood. Um, we're getting a lot of complaints that we're not surveying the right spots, but. Um, the fact is we're serving the same spots over and over again, and we're still seeing a decline in numbers, and the fishermen are seeing it too. Um, so now yeah. I feel like everybody's kind of on the same page. Um, sorry if this is a long explanation. It's, there's so no, many that great. <laughs> to go into it. I, I'm finally feeling like, like we're getting everybody on the same page and that the urchin and the kelp is the problem. It's not... I mean, the red abalone didn't crash because of fishing. It, it crashed because of ocean conditions. And um, if, if we need to step in and um, con- help control that urchin population because the ocean isn't doing it itself, I think we're we're now getting fishermen and scientists on the same page with that and and making big strides um, to change the, the purple urchin fishery laws and regulations so that people can actually – to have a hands-on, um, like a hands-on experience, experience helping to control. I mean, we have a lot of people that want to help, um, and so we want to get divers in the water and maybe cull some of those urchin and let the kelp have a chance to to bounce back. So, um, again, we we made we made the recommendation. We didn't we didn't make the decision, um, and the commission takes. You know, stakeholders, all everybody who everybody's welcome to come and give their opinion. So, it it was really, really. I would not have wanted to be in those guys' shoes. It was a really hard decision, and it affects Mendocino and Sonoma County so much with tourism. The tourism money is is huge. So, I would not have been wanting to make that decision at all. And, and I, I am, I'm just impressed that they that they could do it so um it's it's definite blow for sonoma and mendocino counties that's for sure but we're hoping that we can get get everything back in balance asap and get the fishery back open um do you are you hopeful that in the next even just in one year because i mean one of the things that you know, people have always asked me just because I have abalone, like as a thing that I research that, yeah. like, you know, are they going to come back? And I'm not, you know, I, they're long lived species. You know, they take a while to get big. You know, how hopeful are you that this is a short term fix or do you think that it could be something 
long term. And it may, may, maybe you don't have an idea about it, but um, yeah, I don't. Or, or I've, yes, yes. I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> um, I, I, the hobbyist and the the fisherman in me, wants to say that it's gonna bounce back quick, but the scientist side of me is real hesitant to make any promises about that. I mean, red abalone, they're slow-growing critters. They It takes an average of 12 years for them to even get to a harvestable size of 7 inches. And then I've heard it's um, abalone grow at really inconsistent rates. I mean, in the lab, you'll see abalone that are the same, born the same day that have, you know, complete, completely different shell sizes. I mean, inches of difference. So um, it's really hard to age them, but there's estimates saying that after they reach seven inches, it takes them about eight years to grow another inch. So they're slow-growing creatures, and um, if they aren't spawning this year because they're starving, then it's going to be a few more years before they can reach um, a healthy the individual abalone can reach a healthy enough body condition. If we hypothetically get this kelp back um, to where they're spawning and making babies again, and then after that, it's going to be another 12 years before those babies are harvestable. Um, so keeping that in mind, it, I, I want to say that if we can get this bull kelp, if we can get the nereusis and the macro, the giant kelp to come back, I, I really want to say that we can open open it back up and, and have – you know, a healthy, dense population, but um, the science and the evidence behind that is kind of, kind of going against that. Just because you know they're they're slow growing animals, so, um, it and we've seen in the lab we've seen um, tests done where even if abalone are fed and they can um, get their body size back up to you know, fat, happy-looking abs, you could be holding an abalone in your hand that looks huge and healthy and fat. And then we we do an um, analysis of the gonad of their reproductive system, and there's still no sperm and eggs. So it takes them a while after that to get their reproductive system back in action. Um, so I'd really like to say <laughs> that um, that the fishery can bounce back quickly, but it's just they're they're just a, I mean they're snails. <laughs> they're not known for their speed at at anything. So, um, as soon as we can make efforts and and um, get some actions going to help them out, I mean the sooner the better, and and we can get that process going. But I'm not sure that it can bounce back to the numbers that we usually see very quickly. So how do you think, do you think that the, like, public reaction to that is going to be problematic with the years to come? Or do you think that, because, I mean, I, like, with the methodology um, clarification that you talked about, mm-hmm. um, I feel like that's really important, and I'm, like, really, I'm really glad to hear that that's happening, because I don't even really know how you guys do the surveys. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, but do you think that. that that will help with in the future if the fishery does have to stay closed for um, multiple years? Um, you know, do you think that that will help public, at least in the, in the you know the public view of the process? Yeah, I do. You know, I I'm kind of I I was really perceptive to the backlash online and people um, connecting with. Uh, 
with us in person and it's I mean people are pissed and that's it's and rightly so I mean there it's a tradition it's a lifestyle and people love this fishery um there was a lot of misunderstanding that I saw going around not everybody um misunderstands but a lot of people were misunderstanding our survey process um you know I saw a lot of people saying that we survey over sand and that we just don't survey the right spots and and we survey miles of coastline. I mean, miles. We do as much as we can with the resources we can. Um, and so if it's possible to clear that up, I mean, I can get into the methodology, too. I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, what I was what I was really stoked to see is that people are really, really adamant and really – they have really strong feelings about um, this fishery, and they – want to do I mean they want to be involved with anything they can I I mean I'm stoked at at the response of of people coming together and um you know writing the Fish and Game Commission and trying to get involved and I think we've shifted from initial anger at the closure to like what can we do I've seen um the community really come together and um, come to the meetings, come to the um, open forum meetings and some of the, <laughs> even the not open forum meetings and still, um, you know, putting putting their two cents in. And, uh, I mean, just people from the public with, you know, either little or no science background um, coming up with ideas and um, getting connected with us and um, making huge strides to uh interject in this huge problem and um, get, you know, write up uh, proposals to get these urchin populations under control. And I think if we can allow, if if we can, you know, cut through the red tape that stops o- overfishing of the native species, which is purple urchin, which is the problem, is that they're a native species and it's hard to allow a quote-unquote wasteful take, which is, you know, just culling them out of the ocean. It's really hard from the political and the, uh, the you know, law side of that to, to allow that. Um, a lot of people will argue that it's just an ebb and flow and it's a native species, so, um, you know, we shouldn't interject too much. Anyways, that's a tangent, but um, I think if I think if we – really come together and, and allow people to do what they can to help. I think optics wise, I think it would look, I think it would look way better for the department. I think um, it would really connect the department with the public, which is what we always need more of and which, I mean, we're, we're striving to do and it, it's kind of hard um, sometimes, but I'm all for, um, we're, and all of us are all for, you know, public coming in and helping. I mean, it's exciting that people want to, um, get this fishery back open as soon as possible. Does that answer your question? Cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. This is like a you're kind of giving me exactly what I was hoping to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's great. Um, I guess I don't think I have any more questions. I think probably if there's anything else that you want to say that I didn't ask you about, then that would be fine. But otherwise, like, I, you know, you summarize with the, the conditions between, like, making decisions and what that means for the future and really well. So, um, yeah, great. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? 
Um, I think the only thing I'd want to add is is if we could um, clear, like if I could clear up any questions about the methodology of our surveys. I have a lot of trust in our surveys, and, you know, we we cover a lot of ground, and we aren't, I mean, it's not the best ocean conditions to be <laughs> to be sending out a, at some of these days we're diving, I wouldn't suggest anyone go dive for fun, um, <laughs> but uh, we have a lot of really hard-working divers. I mean, our crew is incredible, and everyone's out there because they want abalone to be out there. I mean, we don't have anyone who is trying to get low counts. I mean, I, our our dive team is super strong. Um, they're all they're they all care so much about the fishery, and we survey we survey fished areas and we survey not heavily fished areas. Um, we had complaints that uh, we were only surveying over, you know, highly fished areas. So no wonder why our counts were low. But we're sending divers out on Zodiacs around these corners that recreational divers don't get to. And the other advantage we have is we're on scuba. We spend an hour, an hour and a half underwater, and we're we're getting a lot more coverage than free divers can get. So, I mean, we're seeing a really good um, amount of of seafloor and it's still the numbers are still low so it's it's it is alarming and and i hope that people um find some some faith in our in our survey methods um we're always welcoming scientific divers to come out and help out with i mean that's like an open invite if as long as they're you know um, certified in, in scientific and research diving um it's it's a, a long and arduous process, but we, I mean, we're covering a lot of ground and we're getting a really good sense of the overall fishery in Sonoma and Mendocino counties through these surveys. Um, we got a, some complaints that surveys that happen over sand and over non-abalone, uh, you know, areas, but uh, it's just not true. We survey over over where we've seen abalone for decades we we go to we don't survey over sand we if we if our random um point drops us over sand we just pick up shop and we move to a rocky reef where they should be so um hopefully these surveys can continue um we these surveys rely a lot on the fishing license funds um so without people buying fishing licenses this year uh, we're going to have to find other funding sources, um, which is a little bit worrisome. But if we can conti- continue to do the surveys, and then it's just one more step to getting that fishery back open. What you do then is you survey over time in the same places where you've seen abalone. It's not like you're going out into random places like, oh, maybe there might be abalone. Right. We've never right. lived here before. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, and 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 we do fish some high, um, heavily fished spots. Van Dam is a popular spot we hit. Um, right. But even even uh, given those spots, um, we've seen the same number of abalone there for years, and we're still seeing. I mean, you can make the argument that that it's standardized, right? If we if we've been hitting that site for years, and we're we're still seeing a drop. Um, this year and these past three years, then it, it's still quantifiable. It's still measurable. Um, we we can compare Van Dam to the years past, where maybe we didn't see the density that we did see that um, and elsewhere because of the fishing 
uh, pressure there, but it's still lower than it has been. And and even if we're uh, surveying overfished coves, we still we still should see those juveniles there. And we're not seeing juveniles. We're not seeing any. I mean, we're not seeing many under seven inches, which um, usually we would see because they're you know as as heavy as it is fished. Nobody should be taking um, right. the ones on you know the babies. So and and even given all this, given like this kind of doom and gloom talk of low bad numbers. Um, we do drop down and we'll see like in a random spot, we'll just see these healthy fat banks of abalone. Um, you know, Van, I saw one in Van Dam when I, and I, I actually was about to stop the survey because I was like, you know, this is just not the right habitat. I think we're in the wrong place. I don't, this is incorrect. This is an incorrect habitat. And I rolled out my transect and I, we saw, I was shocked at how many fat, I mean, there's just like this, there was just this bank there that I, I was so stoked on because there is hope. I mean, there's there's pockets where where urchin haven't got to yet, where the luckiest abalone in the world have gotten to hang out and get fat, and um, it it gives a lot of hope that those spots that those little pockets are there um, because those are going to be the baby makers of the future. <laughs> and for some reason, urchin haven't haven't encroached on their territory. They're just like, uh-uh, we're this is still abalone land, <laughs> and. Um, even with those banks of of, of numbers, uh, we, we those go into the counts and the counts are still too low. So it it's hopeful, but um, overall the numbers just were not high enough for us to suggest the fisheries stay open. I'm glad to hear that there are these hopeful pockets because you know, I'm in Southern California and I the only time I've been up there was to do work for my own research and and that was yeah. one and. Uh, you know, it was sad. Like all, all of the fishermen that I interacted with were like, "What's happening? I Is know. the fishery going to close? Where are all the abalone?" And I'm like, "I don't know." <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Southern California is a is a bit of a different story. Um, unfortunately, I mean, we the the fishery there. We we know the people are. I mean, we know people are still bummed about the continuum the continued closure down in Southern California. And it kind of goes to show that after, I mean, that because Southern California is more an, an overfishing problem, obviously, but um, it goes to show how long it, it does take them to bounce back after low density. So we don't have, I mean, we have more abalone in Northern California, which is good. It's We still have more, even with all this, you know, stuff happening. Um, but Southern California abalone have had a really hard time bouncing back and, and um I mean, as, as another tangent, uh, we're trying to, the White Abalone Project at the Bodega Marine Lab, we're, we're doing a lot of work to outplant um, White Abalone with the goal of having a healthy enough population to open the fishery again. Um, so we have a lot of really awesome, great people, smart people working on um, rebuilding this white White Abalone fishery down here. And apparently... They are the tastiest abalone. So <laughs> we're trying to get them back in the water. And, I mean, we're making efforts to to um, improve the abalone fishery and get fisheries back open. It just – it's not an overnight thing, unfortunately. And we have a lot of really smart minds and um, in the public and and in the scientific world working on it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, uh, this is really great. I, uh, I'm looking forward to adding this to the this podcast episode because I think that I'm, I'm really I'm really excited to get 
this information out there because people are curious and really um, invested in it, and understandably so. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, that, and this is just something that keeps coming up for me too because I said, yeah, well, I'm here in New Zealand, and they don't fishery doesn't close there, so um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for the season, it's not. It's just always it's a thing you can take. So it's like really, it's a wildly different place, and. Um, yeah, I, I'm really excited to kind of get the story from different perspectives, you know, stakeholders or the scientific community. And then and then there's like this added layer of tribal rights to to the the fishery that is part of a culture that, you know, long before I was. Yeah, here. So, um, definitely. Certainly. We, so, we yeah, we had that um, that whole aspect of the salmon fishery, too. So certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I and I you know, at some point, I'd like to talk to someone on the commission because they've made a lot of the meetings, and the final meeting was down in San Diego, which is like mm-hmm. not anywhere near where the tribe is. Wait, yeah, yeah. Um, and it kind of limited their probable ability to to be at that um, that meeting. So yeah, I don't pick their brain about why, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that is a problem, and we've gotten complaints about that too. And unfortunately, the commission's or not unfortunately, but fortunately, the commission has a lot of other uh, marine issues, and it, and the the locations of the meetings kind of they they're just kind of bounced between Northern California and Southern California. Um, yeah. So it sometimes it 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 is hard for people to get all the way. Yeah. I mean, we had that problem with the red abalone fishery. People were bummed that it was in in San Diego when I mean, yeah. the fisheries <laughs> an hour to three above San Francisco. So. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you again so much. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Here, yeah, I'm glad we got off. to connect. I'd like to thank Katie for explaining how the scientific community makes their recommendations to the commission. Um, more importantly, how they monitor abalone populations in the wild and how we know that abalone are in decline um, and that they're doing poorly um, and how those assessments are made. Um I think kind of based on this data, we can say that the level of recreational fishing is obviously um, could not be sustained at the levels that it was last year um, or, and in the years previous. Um, and, and given all the other natural and, and climate change threats to red abalone right now, that just obviously um, has been a problem. And I think that probably the commission has been allowing too much take um, for for too long um, based on those numbers, but that's just my opinion. I haven't really analyzed the data. Um, but there's there's this whole other type of fishing that, that is ignored um, by the commission. Um, and so then that's subsistence fishing, um, which doesn't really get talked about very often in public spaces about abalone. It seems to me like it's really just getting kind of lumped in with recreational fishing. Um, but I, so I'd like to shift from the science behind monitoring these populations um, and, and highlight some of the social and, and cultural issues um, that closing a fishery to all take, um, including subsistence take, has. So for that, I, I spoke with Ariana Henthorn of the Sherwood Valley Band of Pomo Indians. Um, she's a master's student at Washington University in St. Louis where she studies health issues and and disparities in Native communities and lack of access to to Native food traditions. Ariana, would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Ariana. I am a 
master's student at Washington University in St. Louis, and I am an enrolled member of Shared Valley Como Indians in Lewis, California. Okay, great. Um, and you are you also at University of Hawaii too? We yeah, that was my undergrad where I did environmental science. So I'm very familiar uh, at a policy level with lots of intertidal population ecology things. Great. And so you have a lot to say about abalone. Um, I do. I do. <laughs> so, 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 so if I understand, so your tribe is, is a Pomo tribe, right? Yeah. And uh, so the I know that so where I went fishing for abalone is in the same is is land that is the territory of the Pomo tribe. Um, so so describe a little bit about. Um, I guess the the role that abalone um, has in in maybe just in your life, um, but then I know you've been doing a lot of work with native foods, and maybe we could transition to that too. Yeah, so it's hard to distinguish because they're the same for me. My life is also all about food, especially our traditional foods and Pomo nations in general. We're very subsistent and very um, dependent on abalone, which is our staple food. And so just so that people understand, when we have, um, we have, so we have this system set up in the state where the state has these rules, the, the, the has these mandates on who, well, not who, but how much each person is allowed to take. Um, and they apply this, those standards to everyone. Um, even the people that depend on the fishery and have depended on the fishery before the before this government was even in existence. So, um, so that's kind of uh, the the background of, I guess, the the rules of this fishery. Is that right? Yeah, we're subsistence harvesters are lumped in with commercial and recreational harvesters, which is a problem in itself since the purpose is fundamentally different. So you've been doing some some work then to try and either uh I guess bring this this issue to light, is that correct? Yeah. Just I've actually worked with my tribe in crafting letters to California Fishing Game about why subsistence harvesting is it's for subsistence. This is how we live now. I mean, this is what I eat at school. You know, it's not for profit. It's not for recreation. It's not for fun. This is like our food for life. And yet, there's no there's no exemption for um, in the in the state legislation. There's no exemptions for people that need that. That's right. Is that correct? There's no exemptions. I have. We have the same catch limit. Even though, even if it's for, for cultural purpose, a religious purpose, a ceremony purpose, a funeral, like, for example, we still are limited to that. Which is silly because to, if you think about it, as the original caretakers of such an important resource, the fact that it's still there is because we have been able to, you know, sustainably harvest this resource. So to limit us, not e- just not even thinking about stuff like a funeral or a wedding or 
like religion to limit us in like how we can survive day to day is something else. Right. And so the, um, the, the, these rules have been applied because the, the scientists have found a decline in the fishery and yet they have, they're the ones that have allowed an unsustainable take, um, by not taking effective care of the stock. Do you think that that's accurate? I think that's accurate. As a scientist, quantitative scientist, I'm very familiar with doing studies on population ecology, and I get it. But this isn't the answer. Is cutting off people who are using this resource for food every day is not the answer. It doesn't even get to the point of why there is a decline in population. It's just a temporary band-aid, and this is how we got our trade deals with first salmon when we, because now, because we don't have salmon anymore for other reasons that we could talk about, but this is what we trade, and mm. this is our food, and it's everything. And it's like, it's also just learning from my grandpa, which was, you know, intergenerational knowledge. It's what ties a family together. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about the salmon fishery. Um, do you want to describe the the a little bit of the history of that and what's going on with that? I could. Um, we used to have salmon in Mendocino um, before my time, around my grandpa's time, like around the 50s, I think. But due to damming and stuff, they just weren't going to run anymore. And I know they probably, even if we got rid of the dams, there's climate change problems that might stop them now. So we have to trade north for this resource. So what do you do then for, if these if these things are taken away, is, is there a replacement? Is there anything to substitute in, or is this just an absolute loss with no alternative? As far as I see it, you're, it's, gone if you take it forever from a culture you're essentially extinguishing a culture and i think we've done enough of that in the united states so probably i'd like to fight that there's no alternative to abalone in our culture it's the main thing so um what are the things that have been done to to fight either the closure or um the over-harvesting by other people coming into the land and over-harvesting. I mean, there's no rules for who's allowed to come in and and basically steal or, well, legally steal. Um, And so what are some of – do you have any ideas on ways that – and I realize that this might be putting you on the spot, but I'm sure that there are uh, things that you've heard about as as better solutions. Do you want to share any of those? Better solutions. There's better just, solutions for me and my tribe. There's not solutions that are going to work for everybody. And I, I think the solutions are coming from a policy level. It's not coming from a local level or policing each other out there in the tide. It's coming from me and my tribe fighting the state to get the separation of subsistence and recreation harvesting. Ah, uh, okay. 
So to delineate, really, the state, what the state should do is is identify the difference between recreational fishing and subsistence fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and allow permitting just for the subsistence fishing, fishing, fishery. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be the solution. Because really, this is another law that's prohibiting our culture from functioning, which was a thing up until the 1970s. So I'm pretty angry. I'm pretty livid to see this happening again in my lifetime when it. You know, my mom went through this, so I have to yeah. do it too. This is ridiculous. Um, and so, is one of the things um, that maybe people could do is to lobby for this just different distinction between substance subsistence fishing and recreational fishing. I think that would be the start. Okay. There is other things that, like, the main pressure I've seen and the main things that I've really hurt me or seen just out of region pressures from metropolitan areas for people to gather is much clear, cleared out. And that's, that's something else that could be addressed. So you, you've been, I guess, doing some of this lobbying yourself. Is that right? Yeah. I'd say so. I'd say so. That in the capacity that I've gotten the attention of Intertribal Agricultural Council, it's just other places that are advocating for Native sovereign food rights and just telling them that, hey, we're in California. We don't have the agriculture that the Midwest might have had, like Cahokia, but our food is super important, too. Yeah. And have you gotten any positive responses from anyone that's not on any kind of tribal council? So the rest, like the non-tribal council governance um, or government in the state, have you gotten any good feedback from them or has it always been negative and non-helpful? It's been non-responsive from the state side, like officially. You know, I write letters to them on behalf of my tribe a lot, like when I have time between school, but the younger generation who are taking these positions, who have been really cool and, like, willing to talk to me, as opposed to, like, some of the uppers who haven't been very helpful or even responded or acknowledged that I wrote them a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Is there any way for other young abalone scientists to help to use is there any way that we can use our research or better alliances i guess can be formed between abalone biologists and um the and the subsistence fishery i think there's lots of room to play with that i'd love to see some co-authored publications out there between tribes and i'm a scientist for my tribe so then you'd be a scientist for your school so we could like hang out and we can like talk about what we need to see out there. Yeah. What kind of surveys, what kind of bathymetry maps we need to make, you know? Yeah. There's lots of room to play with that. It just needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah, because one of the things that I've found particularly frustrating about this and um entire issue, like I, I I'm not from 
California, but I study abalone and I, every talk you go to about abalone starts with abalone are culturally important. And we used to have them in our barbecues. And it's totally just focused on this perspective of basically the ways that settlers use abalone. And they just completely ignore the history of the actual fishery. The history for them starts in like the 1920s. <laughs> and so part of why I wanted to focus this episode um, or the my motivation for the focus of this episode is to start to reframe that um, for at, at least the audience that I engage with down here in Irvine a lot, um, which doesn't focus at all on the um, native history of this fishery. I think that's super big, and I appreciate that viewpoint from you. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you'd like to, you know, encourage people to do or to share about the the fishery and, and this, this decision that the commission has made to close it for next year? I think the biggest problem is people don't know the history of the culture and why it's important. So I think there's not a lot of, I think learning the history would be a start just for even the people who live on the coast and then we can go from there. Yeah, and maybe all the people that um, consider themselves recreational fisher fishers and why, why that, that, if that's important to them to actually learn a little bit deeper about what they're harvesting. Yeah, I think that would be so, so huge. Awesome. And then yeah. I'd also like to not get the cops called on us when we try to go harvest. As <laughs> and then they bring 20 people and they're cool, you know. So, so oh, wait, you maybe wanna... that's a whole other thing. <laughs> no, I want to hear about that because my the only time I've ever gone um, – up fishing is because I was collecting digestive tissue samples from abalone, but I I didn't want to harvest any extras for my science, so I was harvesting the samples from what fishers were catching. Um, and I didn't see a single warden on the three days that I was up there. That's um, crazy because the day that I would go up there, or me and my mom would go up there, you bet there is police and there is wardens. And they are watching, and they are stopping cars, and I've, it happens. People will call it in, and I don't appreciate that. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> wow. Do you think that they're um, do they do you think that they do that to everyone, or do they, do you think that they target areas where they know that people are subsistence fisher, fishing versus recreational fishing? There are places that. Tribal people will harvest mostly, you know, like we've been going to these places forever, especially like we have family ties to certain places where we harvest. Like I, I can only go some places and another family will only go some other places. So they know where to be and they know to look for. It. And I've only seen this kind of reaction to people when there's native people, brown people. We can get into that too. But. <laughs> I haven't seen it for any other demographic who's out there fishing. <laughs> You're making us both. You know what I've seen too? What's like, interesting? I've seen 
<laughs> no, no, I've seen like residents who live by our spot. They have like fake uniforms and they're like trying to stop us. And I'm like, dude, I've worked for the government. I know <laughs> this isn't real, but I don't know. I don't know what that attitude's about. If we're, wow. we're not even taking like hundreds of abalone, you know, we're taking four for dinner and cheese. And plus, like, it's silly to think that I'm trying to, like, take all the harvest. Like, I want there to be more harvest so I can go back in, like, the next year, you know? That's the whole mentality (laughs) is to have some stewardship. But I don't know. I have a quick question. Uh, From my understanding, you're now taking a more of a medical approach to the situation. Could you expand a little bit about that? Heck, yeah. Okay, so I have... I have many theories. One of them is that the increased rate of hypertension and diabetes and heart disease are all stemming from being removed from our food sources, from policies that are in place like this one that just got passed. So my whole plan is to take a more medical intervention where I reintroduce our people to these foods. Like, it's really hard for, like, elderly people and young people to, like, get out to the coast from where we are. You know, mm-hmm. some people can't afford the drive, so they're going to eat something from the convenience store. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole plethora of medical issues that could be addressed by allowing Native people to eat their traditional foods. And then that's where I'm going with that. <laughs> And that's the subject of your graduate studies? Yeah, right now. Right now. And then I'll be done with that in a year, and then I'll go to med school. And then I'll come back, and then I'm going to write some grants. And we're going to get people out to the coast, which I'm writing a grant right now, which is supposed to be, like, community development and traditional foods, where I bring the elderly people and the youth together out to the coast to just have a little harvesting day where we tell stories about the harvest. Like one time my grandpa was there and then a wave came over his head and he lost the catch, you know, something, you know, story time. Mm-hmm. We get to learn about traditional foods. We get to learn the language. It's just the whole cultural immersion around food, which is, I think, completely necessary, especially if we're, people are trying to remove us from the land again. But I don't know if it'll happen if it's outlawed to live your culture. Yeah. <laughs> We're both sitting here like this is stuck. Um, uh, so I kind of, I mean, I kind of want to learn a lot more about your research, but I almost want to like ask if we can do a whole episode just on that another yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we sh- no, dude, we should do, like, partner research. I'm really interested at looking at population ecology in a specific place. We could do that. I don't know if that's your kind of research, but, like, I'm down. We should do it this summer. Let's get some funding. <laughs> that would be awesome. I, um, so I'm studying, <laughs> uh, this, so I, what I do is I study I study the digestive systems. This might be like moving past, but we'll end up using the podcast. But like I study digestive systems of abalone and how climate change affects their physiology. Um, 
but I also study this in New Zealand, um, and New Zealand co contrasts well, I guess, with what's happening with our fisheries in California because their take limit is 10 per person per day, um, and no annual – well, I guess the annual limit is like 3,650 or, you know, however many days there are times 10, but they don't have any kind of restrictions like we do here. And as far as I know, even the farming is all owned by native Mari, um, which is the farming of the of Pawa, the abalone. Um, and it's really different than it is. It's so different than it is in California. Um, but maybe at some point we could talk more about that before, because I'm going back to New Zealand in February to study the effects of climate change on their as well. Um, maybe this is this seems like a potential way to team up and do some kind of really like an interesting comparison between the two places. Dude, that sounds pretty interesting. I'd be interested. <laughs> <laughs> I think probably the bigger problem would be access to the coastline because just getting to um, the coastline can be difficult, um, and that would be whoa, 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 you want to talk about access to coastline? We totally, yeah, I know, right? like, we're not allowed to go in some places because people privately own the land, so, like, we could get shot if we try to, like, go to places my grandpa went to, so that's not cool, too, but. So how much of the coastline would, that you used to, well, not you, but your family, um, used to utilize like, how much of that is now private land that you can't access? It'd be a significant amount. I can't say for sure because I've only known what my grandpa taught me and where we could go. And even actually in my lifetime, that's diminished. Like, I can only go to one spot now. Whereas when I was younger, like 10 or 12, I could go, like, up and down the coastline in various areas. And now I have Jeez. one spot together. So that's another thing. And who owns that? Is that is it just is it the state or is it private citizens? I think it's it's a mix for sure. It's city, it's private citizens, it's um yeah, state state parks have some of it too. And they they can't come to a, a realistic way to just allow you and your family to to use the land. No, I mean, even, like, I don't know if you've, how much you talked to my mom, but, like, where we live on the coast, it's been gradually being pushed out. Like, like we're getting fenced out by Georgia Pacific. Like, they keep encroaching, encroaching, encroaching every year. Like, I can see it. They build their fences closer and closer to our lines in our houses. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, I don't know. We're, it's not a topic that the city wants to discuss with us. They think that us living there is enough, like just having houses, and that's not enough. You need to, like, subsist. You need to have food, so that's another little divot. And that, that limited access also, I mean, not just apart from the fact that that is not their land that they're taking, but um that will also further continue it'll continue to limit your ability to use 
the ocean for a food as a food source, right? Yeah. And we, there's a lot of things that we get from the ocean, not just apple. Even though that's the main thing, we have other things that we get. We need seaweed, we need fish, we need surfish, mussels, urchins, you know. And yeah. You can't just get that from one spot. That's just not how the land works. Right. It's almost like, uh, you know, the fishery closed because they said that there was over harvesting and there's not enough abalone left. And, and what I'm saying is, okay, well, we're trying to do this sustainably and harvest from lots of places, small amounts, so that we don't do the same thing to everything. And they're saying, well, you can't actually have access to any of the places that you need to go to, to make that reality. Is that right? Yeah, that would sum it up pretty well. That is so annoying. <laughs> so, that, that's something that, like, I enjoy, like, fighting at a policy level, though. That's what I did all summer was just yell at the state, or not yell. I'd name off resources that I'd like to have protected for subsistence harvesting. But okay. we, I have yet to see them care. What part of... I guess what branch of the government is the one that you would focus the most on? Is it, it's not Fish and Game Commission, right? Um, you know, I've talked to them. I'd like to work with them primarily, actually, since they're just the state stuff. And this is a state thing. And I'd like to keep it you know, at that level, even if a tribe were operating at a federal level and then we're talking to a state entity, I think that's where it should stay. Hmm. Yeah, I guess we, with the, you know, how black abalone and white abalone are listed as federally endangered species, we run the risk of that with any of our other abalone species. And if that happens, then there's a whole new level of bureaucracy uh, oh, that about. sounds horrible. <laughs> you have so, yeah, what can we, when listening to this podcast, do to help? Well, always talk to Jared Huston. He's like the man. <laughs> Jared cares. I don't know. I don't want this to be a campaign thing, but like representatives, right? The California Fish and Game Commission has comment periods where the public can comment on stuff. And you just need to, like, write them a letter. It doesn't even have to be long. Just say, this is crap. Stop it. Or, like, write a whole thing about intertidal populations. So, like, people need to, like, talk to these. It's just a little – someone else is sitting there reading them. So it's not, like, this big – you can't change anything. You just need people to talk. Is there anything else that you wanted to share or put into the podcast even um, before we before we head off? Maybe just the statement that if the California state is the place limits on tribal harvest of our subsistence, it's just a gross disregard of our indigenous culture. Um, and as a sovereign tribal entity, we're there's no way that I'm going to stand or tolerate or we will stand and tolerate 
just the subjection to food insecurity. This is our lifeline, and that's it. So we'll fight for it. And that's all I got. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for you. talking to us about this. I understand that it's a uh, an annoying and really difficult thing to be fighting right now. Yeah, but fight we will. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time. And maybe oh, we should do a study you. together. Hit me up. <laughs> definitely, I, 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 I definitely would love to talk more in the future about um about your research, and I might be in touch again because I think even highlighting just what, I mean this specific issue of abalone aside, but just highlighting what your thesis is on would be a really cool topic um for our podcast so if you wouldn't mind doing it again i I might i might like to actually come up and interview you in person so that the audio is really good for that um but that'd be cool and then we could have abalone to eat oh my gosh that sounds amazing (laughs) (laughs) that does sound amazing (laughs) all right well thank you guys so much I'd like to sincerely thank Ariana for taking the time to share her perspective and her research with us and provide us with this context. It's clear that colonization of these coastlines um, and this fishery in particular is is often ignored or totally ignored in the decision-making process. And it does, it seems to me like the, the community stakeholders, so just talking about community stakeholders, um, that are that are paid the most attention to are these recreational fishers. And, and while that's important, um, we, we really need to centralize Native voices fighting against um, colonization of this fishery more. Um, and I, I understand the, the science. We're, we're taking too many abalone. We've taken too many abalone. Um, and that's uh, historically been the case. Um, we allow significant overfishing of all abalone populations. But... Um, you know, I'm, I'm left asking, why is all fishing, all types of fishing weighted the same um, when they have vastly different cultural, traditional, and societal values? So wh- why are these subsistence and recreational fishery fishing weighted the same or one is ignored um, when they have different inherent values? Um I also want to know why the commission meetings are being held so far away from the fishing grounds. And I, I'm left wondering, is that intentional in the decision-making process to leave out voices that should be heard? I'm not going to offer any solutions right now. Um, I don't have the solutions. I'm a, I'm a biologist also trying to learn more about the history of this, this decision-making process and um, and what the state of our red abalone fishery is right now. Um, but I, I'll, I'll highlight the work that other people are doing on solutions um, in future episodes. For now, I'd like to thank Katie again for providing a summary on the studying of, of and assessing of red abalone populations in the wild. Um, you know, the scientific community also gets criticized for the way that they make assessments Um, And so I really wanted to highlight some of the good work that the Department of Fish and Wildlife is doing to measure what's happening in the wild and to monitor um, 
on a large spatial scale what's happening in the wild. I'd also really like to thank Ariana again for providing the social, social, cultural, and and traditional um, importance of this this fishery, and for highlighting how the decision making process often ignores these pieces. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Turn of the Tide. I hope you learned a little bit more about the red abalone history in California. As a transplant, I know that I have learned um, a lot more about this process as I created this episode. And I look forward to um, highlighting more voices and more perspectives in the future.